Ten people were killed on Irish roads over the weekend, making it one of the year's worst weekends this year. A man in his 60s has been killed in a two-car collision on the M1 near Monaster Boyce in County Louth. Another person was injured in the accident. Well, as you heard, it's been one of the blackest weekends on Irish roads in memory. We've news in of an accident in Drawda on the Bridge of Peace. That's blocking one lane heading south. Gordy, you're at the scene. A woman died after the car she was driving was involved in a three-car crash on the Kilmeden to Dungarvan Road in County Waterford at about half past seven last night in North Cork. And Five people have been killed in a car crash in County Down. Gardaí are continuing to investigate a number of road accidents over the past 24 hours, which left six people dead. This evening, a seventh person has been killed. A man in his 20s has died following a two-car collision in County Kerry. This is the only actual dedicated rehabilitation hospital in the country. I think for those of us who work here, you know, when you hear about road traffic accidents, we often think of the people who survive, you know, when you hear the stories on the news and, you know, wonder will they come to us. It's a hidden result of traffic accidents that people often don't think about, like what happens to these people one or two or five years down the road. And I suppose we would see that here. Katrina had her accident on the 24th of December, 1989. It was a hit and run accident. She was in a coma for six weeks. And I was in a road traffic accident back in 2000. I think I was in or around the coma for nearly two weeks, not quite two weeks. I was in Dunleary then as an inpatient. Six weeks was that? My daughter was in an accident when she was aged four and a half. She's now 13. She sustained traumatic frontal brain injuries, fractured skull, multiple facial injuries, or her face reconstructed. I've had acquired brain injury due to a road traffic accident I had in April 2000. I sustained numerous hemorrhages and broken bones down the right-hand side of my body. Um, she was in Dunleer for several months. She learned to walk again, talk again. It was very traumatic because I had a lot of other children at home. This is what they call the silent epidemic of the modern world. So they were saying if it was a disease such as meningitis, it would be called an epidemic. That's how, how big the numbers are. A lot of the people we see here just wouldn't have survived their injuries 20 years ago. And now they're coming along through the system and there's... The services aren't ready for them. The technology and the skills that are available now to save people's lives at the golden hour stage, when people can get to an acute um, neurosurgical centre such as University College Cork or Beaumont, the things that can be done now to, to save people's lives have changed so much over, say, the past 20 or 30 years that we're now seeing people survive illnesses and accidents that they wouldn't have survived before. So we are seeing people here with a greater level of disability than we would have seen years ago. My name is Margaret and it's Siobhan in our family. Uh, Siobhan, um, she's now 25, but in October uh, 2001, Siobhan... um, Two years ago. About two years ago, uh, she was driving her car and she was involved in a a terrible bad uh, road traffic accident. She was taken to the Loud Hospital and she was transferred that night to the Beaumont. She was in a coma for two and a half weeks and um, she stayed in the Beaumont for 32 days actually and then she was transferred back um, to the Loud County Hospital and um, to the ICU there where she spent another three months. So now we're into um, 2002 and she was transferred in February uh, 2002 um, to the rehab in Dunleary where she spent um, just nine months so uh, she was in hospital just for one year. So she's just home with us now one year. Uh, Siobhan is still in a wheelchair. Her speech is affected and um, her right arm and right leg. Her balance is very poor. 
Um, I'm memory. Your memory, well, it's, it's coming. It's coming. It was very, very poor, or short-term memory particularly, but um, it's coming. It really has affected our family. It's so it's it's so hard to accept it. And that's all I have to say. Um, no, I've nothing to say except I'm new to this group, so I was never here before. But I realised that it's difficult for families, but it's very difficult, more so for the people. Because I was a recently qualified social worker. In 18 months, it was 18 months, I lost my job and my car and my boyfriend. So I was only after doing a degree and a master's, and this is what happened to me. Now I'm ended up in a wheelchair. And it's not what I want, but uh, it's something that I have to live with. Most people who come to us here in the hospital are are really still in shock and and trauma. I mean, most people who come would say that one day their life was one way and in a second their whole life was turned upside down and everything has changed, all aspects of their life. Certainly at the stage they come here, it feels like everything has changed. People react to trauma or major change in their life in in different ways, and they're all normal reactions. You know, some people um, want to get to get sorted very quickly, want to look at the practicalities, and want to say, right, you know, and and let's see what we can do to help. Other people will say to you, they just can't take it in, and they can't take it in for for months. They really don't want to believe that this is the way their own lives are going to be or their relatives' lives. And it's a process. It takes a long time to really come to terms with with this kind of a change in in your lifestyle and in in your life expectations. It was a Monday, and the weekend before, I'd been on a weekend with all my friends down in Crossmay Glen. And Monday, I was back at work. I was... Driving to Carrickmacross to do a house call and I was following behind a family support worker who knew the house and a lorry came and met me. Two lorries came on the other side of the road so I thought to myself, oh, I'll keep in. So I kept in and went into a dip in the road and it threw me out into the path of the lorry and I hit the truck behind at the back and that's all I remember. I blacked out and woke up four weeks later. Um, In the afternoon of the accident, I suppose it was about, let's say, five o'clock that evening, um, and I got a phone call to say that uh, Sharon was in the local hospital in Dundalk. So I left my place of work and I went to, you know, the Louth Hospital and um, I saw Siobhan and um, I was just shocked when I saw her. I was told that uh, she had a very severe head injury and uh, she had two broken femurs and a punctured lung. 
and that, you know, the team was working on her. Uh, so then my husband arrived and we sat in a room and, and, you know, we talked to some of the nurses who were there to help us. And um, then later on, uh, Siobhan was transferred then up to the Beaumont. So she left about, I think it was about half nine or ten o'clock that night uh, by ambulance to the Beaumont. So it was about, I suppose, about half past two in the morning and we saw the team then up there in Beaumont. So they sat us down and we were in shock as to what we were going to hear. But um, what they did say was, uh, you know, the next 72 hours would be crucial. So that was that night and we sat up and the next morning then uh, Siobhan was taken to theatre to get the pins into her femurs. So uh, she went down to theatre and she was about uh, three to four hours away and she came back up and then it was just really, you know, hours and hours of time spent in the Beaumont, in the waiting room or in, in the, you know, in the ICU beside Siobhan's bed. So then... 24 hours passed and we were saying, oh God, this is great now, you know. And then she had another scan done uh, just a few days after that again and there wasn't really much improvement in the scan. So they just, um, they spoke to us at length about, you know, her head injury. And um, it's hard to describe the shock and the pain and the sadness and feeling of loss and all those things you just it was just unreal over those over those first few days so then as time went on Siobhan was still in the coma and um, after about a week and a half she was taken off uh, the ventilator and she stayed in the moment for exactly 34 days in all and then we were told that she would be uh, transferred back to our hospital here in Loud. So she was transferred back to Loud and she stayed there in the ICU in the Loud Hospital up until uh, the 11th of January. And um, by then she had, you know, she had woken up, but um, she had no speech and um, she could move her head very, very slightly. I wasn't in a coma as such, but I was half asleep if you know what I mean still I wasn't fully awake and I can't really remember that time in the loud at all or in Bowmond but I remember going to the rehab on the 11th of February going up there by ambulance with my mum. I was feeling very nervous and I couldn't really talk because my speech was not half as good as it is now. And all the thoughts were going through my head. Will I like it? Will it be nice? Will I get on well? things like that, all the way to Dublin. And when I got there, I was still nervous, but I gradually settled in. And before long, after about a month, I was 
Senet as a second home. I was getting to the stage where I was institutionalized. I knew what staff were on every day, who was new, who wasn't, things like that. Towards the end, about after about seven and a half months, I began to get fed up of it. Because I'd been there so long and because I was stuck in the routine, when I'd come home at weekends, I found it very strange being at home, very different. I was so used to having staff around me up there and in Donnery and coming home and having your family at home was different. But I adjusted. I hope you weren't treating them like the staff now, were really. uh, I was. Uh. It was a very trying time, as anybody that has had any um, tragedies in the homes will know from daughters or sons. And I was only one of many throughout Ireland. Um, but when it comes into your house, I would have to say, it devastates the whole house, the family, the other three daughters that I have, uh, Neve, Siobhan and Orla and Emo, um, they were all devastated. We found it very hard to cope, very, very hard. The neighbours here in Stabannon and Margaret's family were brilliant to us and without their support, we would not have been able to carry on. Um, we, we were never short of friends here in Stabannon and they were absolutely brilliant to us and they helped us a great deal. I was very institutionalised at first, I was thinking, what time will I get up, but can I eat now, things like that. But after a while, I got settled in and was able to do my own thing. I'm at home a year now, and I'm looking forward to starting in the Wheelchair Association in Dada. It's something to do because I'm sitting at home every day and the knowledge that I used to have for work is slowly fading away. So I need to try and get some of that back and get out of the house because I'm sitting here every day. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, when Siobhan first came home, it was very, very difficult. It was hard, I suppose, in one way, you know, caring for her and caring for the whole household that was living here at home with us. And um, she was so ill. She was, oh, she was seriously ill at the time of the accident and for weeks later. But, um, you know, like, you know, when the months went by and all that... She did improve, and we saw the improvement. And then when she came home, um, you know, to live full-time with us after uh, spending eight and a half months up in rehab, you know, the house had to be changed over a bit. So um, we built on to the house over the summer months there, and uh, Siobhan has her own uh, bedroom and bathroom and living room. So that's 
that's great, you know, and um, she can move around the house in the wheelchair and thank God, you know, we live in a bungalow. I don't know what we do if, if you know, if, if it was a two-storied house or that. This is my bedroom. I have an electric bed which I got off their occupational therapist. As you can see, everything I need is at my level in this room. Everything is... The wardrobes have a lower rail for me to reach them and a higher rail for things I don't use much. So you give Mama a holler for those, do you? Yeah, I do. Well... Mostly coats and that. Our lives will never be the same again. You know, just trying to adjust, you know, to a new situation. Siobhan has to adjust too. And um, it's even harder on her. But um, it's hard on us here as parents. So you're bringing me into the bathroom here, yeah? Yeah. This is my bathroom. And I got the shower chair off the occupational therapist. I suppose for a long time um, I had it at the back of my head oh no I don't think we need this facility for Siobhan you know when the first mentioned it you know I said oh no 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 Siobhan will walk at some stage but um, then as the months went by I just knew that Siobhan would need a wider space and a bigger bathroom higher toilet bowl to get onto myself and I am delighted now with the facility and um, I hope we'll have many happy years here and I hope Siobhan will enjoy it See so your Jamie Oliver cookbook there. Do you do any cooking? Um, I before my accident, I was mad into cooking, and I was supposed to start a cookery course, but I didn't. I didn't then, but I will. The blessing now is on this Saturday, please God, and uh, Father Derek. He's a friend of mine. He's coming down to do the. Honours and um, Siobhan's friends are coming up from Cork and some from Dublin and some neighbours and some family members and uh, yeah, we'll have a party. Yeah. Uh-huh. Your living room. Yeah. This is lovely. Yeah, it is. Um, I use my computer a lot every day to check my emails and keep in contact with my friends. So... I can transfer onto a chair myself independently. Well, the funding of the extension um, it was our own funds plus the, the Loud County Council uh, grant, which was appreciated because without it, we wouldn't have been able to put this facility here for Siobhan. And we have a little patio for me to go out to, which is lovely. In the summertime, I can go out and have barbecues uh, and it's great it gives me some fresh air every day You've just moved in here in the last week isn't that right? Yeah I moved in about a week ago but it will be lovely to have my own place and my own independence Quite a considerable number of people we see here would be physically fine, but they would have cognitive and judgment difficulties. And 
often they look fine and for the first five minutes you meet them you wouldn't know there was anything wrong they're good at saying maybe hello how are you and they have the social um, phrases for the first five minutes and what happens is you know people come up and say to the mom or the spouse or the the child um, god you're great you look great and isn't it great you're doing so well and I think that just makes a lot of people feel more isolated because they can't even begin to explain the differences in the person that they knew they used to have and that's very difficult for both the person themselves with the injury and also their carers so it's a sort of the, the hidden nature of the disability I'm Irene uh, Katrina's mother. Katrina had her accident on the 24th of December, 1989. It was a hit-and-run accident. She was in a coma for uh, six weeks, and she was in Bowman f- until April. And in May, I think it was, she was moved to rehab in Dunleary. And then she came home in August. And her balance is very poor. It's her, her right hand, her right side is affected, and her balance is poor. She has just was right-handed, but she's forced to write with her left. My name is Fintan Lawler. Um, I'm nearly 25, not quite. Um, I was in a road traffic accident back in 2000. I was just after qualifying as a primary school teacher. I was teaching in in Navan in the school there. I just moved out home. I'd say roughly 13 days. I moved out, I actually left home on April Fool's Day, which was a bad omen, I suppose. But um, I was in, I was up in Beaumont Hospital for, I think it was five weeks, uh, all in all. Uh, I'm, I'm Beaumont for five weeks. I think I was in or around the coma for nearly two weeks, not quite two weeks. Um, I was in Dunleary then as an inpatient, or an inmate, I don't know, uh, for how much, six weeks was that? Six weeks, and then after Christmas of the, that year, um, I was brought back to the, the rehab in Dunleary to do a vocational training programme, and now I'm sort of baby-stepping my way back to, to normality, but it's slow. My name is Mary. Um, my daughter was in an accident when she was age four and a half. She's now 13, nearly nine years ago. She sustained traumatic frontal brain injuries, fractured skull, multiple facial injuries or her face reconstructed but um, saying that if she walked in you would know there was anything wrong with her at all you know um, she was in Bowman for several months she was in Dunleer for several months she learned to walk again talk again um, it was very traumatic because I had a lot of other children at home but um, we got through it my name is Margaret Donoghue I've had acquired brain injury due to a road traffic accident I had in April 2000 um, where I sustained um, numerous hemorrhages and broken bones down the right hand side of my body Um, I was transferred to Beaumont for five weeks um, where I was two and a half, three weeks in a coma and then after that referred back to Cavan Jenner and due to catching MRSA which is the virus kind of very common in hospitals these days I was released home um, where I had to more or less recover by myself with the help of my family um, I worked as an accountant and I have managed to restore that and I'm now working again as a financial accountant and I've more or less recovered 100% by losing the vision of my right eye and every so often I get pains in my right femur as well due to the injuries I sustained and um, all I can say is you know 
to anybody who's been there, you know, don't give up hope because by perseverance and hard work, you know, you get there. Bree started really through a lot of people feeling here in the hospital that we were seeing families, they were asking us, okay, what what do we need to go home? What kind of service can we expect? You know, what kind of support will we get at home? And at that time, and that was in 1999, we were having to say, well, really, there's very little out there for you. Um, And families were feeling very abandoned. And two of the nurses here decided to set up a public meeting to see would families come and could we do something about it as a group. We weren't really expecting, thought maybe 50 or 100 people might come, but in fact 500 people turned up that night in, it was March in 1999. And there was just an incredible outpouring of, of grief and anger at that meeting. And people talked about how they felt abandoned by the system, how they felt that you know, so much money had been put into saving the person's life at the acute medical stage and now there was nothing for them and that they felt nobody cared anymore, they had no respite, they wondered what was going to happen to the person that they cared for if they if they themselves died. So there was a huge level of, of anger and, and sadness at that meeting. And out of that we decided to continue meetings and the organisation has as its mission statement the the aim to be a voice for people with acquired brain injury to advocate for better quality of life and for better services in partnership with professionals and carers and survivors themselves we aim to this through strength and understanding that's what the word "bre" means in irish and it's really that together there's strength in being together hearing each other's stories and then using the information to be a conduit through to people who can make a difference. Just saying to you guys down there, if, when did you have your accident, Siobhan? 2001. 2001. Well, I know I had my accident in, in 2000, in April 2000. I spend, Jenny, nearly two and a half years sleeping. Well, st- every, every other day I was sleeping, I was sleeping. But in every other, every other day, I had a window of opportunity. Every day, like, I would have an hour or two where I was fairly sharp. Like I was, and when I was sharp, that was my time that I'd go hell for letter. I would do your crosswords. I would write letters. That was one thing I did. I wrote more letters, lads, than you could even believe. I wrote to everyone. And I bore, I, I bore people to death. But I spent my first two and a half years between sleeping and doing a bit, sleeping and doing a bit. And it, like the incy wincy spider in the, the old primary school, the incy wincy yeah. spider climbing up the wards about that one. Yeah. You just... You just you just have to baby step it along and please God like I'm sure don't don't be even thinking don't even be thinking about losing hope. Barry Barry was in the rehab with me. We were there as we were there as inmates as I say one time, and he comes he came over to me and I in the over to where I was sleeping. And he says, he, and he's so right back then. He says whatever you do, never lose hope. And I, that's all you have. Never lose hope. So don't don't even think don't even think of it. I'm Barry Courtney, and um, I'm from Virginia. And like um, on the same point as as Fenton ju- just so rightly was talking about, don't don't lose hope. Um, midway through my year, the year that I spent in hospital, I came across I don't know how I came across it, but I came across th- these two these two lines, two lines like in a book, two sentences. They were they were an inspiration to me, and I read them, and I've since found out that they are true, and I I, don't, I never forget them. I say them 
to myself every every morning when I get up out of bed. The, the the two lines are, and you must believe this. You must believe this, and if you believe it, you can make it true. The the two lines are, everything will be all right in the end, and if everything is not all right, it's not the end. Yeah. But like him, um, you just you must just believe that, and and if you believe that in your heart and soul, there's nothing. There's nothing that's impossible. I had started to work in the child protection area in Dundalk as that social worker and I'd only been qualified since June and my accident was in October so I was only newly qualified and new to the whole area but I settled in and got a grasp of it. I was on the road every day, visiting clans, visiting homes, and going to court. Some nights I wasn't home till 12 o'clock at night. So it was a tough job, but I loved it. I did love it, and... There was other young social workers there that I was working with, so that made all the difference. As well, I was very independent before my accident and used to just say to my parents, I'm away, bye, and slam the door. But now, when I go out, Everything is a big ordeal. It takes me ages. I have to get ready, change my clothes, put on makeup, things like that. And it's not even worth it sometimes. And as well, I've... No, I haven't lost friends, but I've... My friends are still there, thank God. They're very good to me. And they come down every time they can. And I go out with them. And I don't want to dwell on it. But I just want to say, I was going out with a fella for seven years. And it's over now. So that was hard because I always thought if I hadn't had my accident, none of this would have happened. And maybe I have changed because I had the accident. Maybe I did change. But I would hope whoever I meet in the future will accept me for who I am. I feel that Siobhan has just lost so much. You know, she was so independent. She went off to college at 17 and she had been living away from home for six years and um, she was just starting into a new job and, you know, I was ever so proud of her. And, um, you know, the loss that she has now, um, I feel it, but I, I, I have no idea how she must be at, from time to time about it. Um, she just had everything going for Fiona, but just 
In the flash of an eye, everything just changed on that Monday, 22nd of October. But um, I'm hopeful that Siobhan, you know, will walk at some stage, even if it's only just around the house, a household walker or whatever, and, you know, we're still driven and committed that, you know, Siobhan will, you know, move on and keep moving on, and that's, that's all you can say, and that's all you can dream for. I spend my day watching TV and doing crosswords that and exercises. I do them in the morning, standing. I have to stand for 10 minutes a day, three times a day, to build up the muscles. I still can't walk. I still am 100% confined to a wheelchair. I'm not able to stand on my own for long periods of time, 15 minutes at the most. I would like to just use the wheelchair for shopping or work, but be able to put it into my car, be able to stand myself and walk a bit myself and put it into my car and drive. Driving, I want to be able to drive because we live in the middle of the country here so I need to get to uptown to work so I need to be able to drive because I'm at the stage where I've accepted that I might be in a wheelchair for a good while yet. Not forever, I hope, but a good while. It's Margaret and myself that is here most of the time with Javon. Margaret had to cut back on her hours and I give a hand here most of the time too and it's 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 hard work. Um, my eldest daughter, Neve, is in Cork. She's a school teacher down there. And my other daughter, Emma, is in Dublin. And she's a psychiatric nurse in St. John of God's in Dublin. And the youngest lassie is, is home here at the moment. She does some part-time work. And she helps Orla. But um, it's, it's very hard to explain only to people who have gone through what we are now going through. The one thing that keeps me going is that I see this improvement in Siobhan. And the one thing I would love dearly is that Siobhan would get back to work in in some capacity, uh, that her training will, will allow her to get back to. I'm looking forward to that day, and I know Siobhan is as well. And please, God, in the future, that will come. I would hope that I go back to social work, even if I don't go back to as job as a social worker I want to be able to use my degree and my masters to help me so it's very important and when I'm looking for a job I will be looking for a job that I can use my skills in all the people that says okay you can't do this you can't do that they well, I mean, they like they want us maybe not to expect, not to expect to maybe be achieving 
and to be, to have those expectations disappointed. But don't stop aiming and don't stop dreaming. Because um, as someone once said, we should not st- stop dreaming for if dreams die, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. Yeah. So I mean, like, don't don't let don't let them limit you. Don't let their vision limit you. Just you follow your dream, and don't let them put you down or say you can't do that. Because only you know what you can and cannot do. When you meet somebody who really knows in a way that I can't know as a professional what you've been through and uh, what it's really like and what it's like for your community not to really understand. I think one of the biggest things about brain injury is that in general, and not to anybody's fault, but people out in the community generally don't really know what an acquired brain injury is. And even sometimes when I ring up other professional groups looking for services, they might say to me, what does it mean he has a brain injury? And you, you feel like you're starting at the beginning all the time. So when families come up against that, it's just so, it's such a mountain for them to climb that it, the effort to do that is just too much. And often people will say to me, families have said to me that they just say, oh yeah, my son's fine because it's just too difficult to explain. So they just go away feeling that sense of isolation. And just one other thing that I read during my year in hospital is that um, it says that suffering makes us stronger. And I think that's true, but whether it's true or not, that's what you have to believe. You have to believe that in some way you're better, that you're, that you're a stronger person for having this tragedy happen to you. I know it's very, 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 very hard, but just try, to, try and look at the positive. I know it's not always easy. I know it only too well. And I'm sorry if I'm talking waffle again. Ah. Yes, it was very good, um, you know, to meet other parents of children who were involved, you know, in road traffic accidents. And um, Fenton, he was involved in one about three to four years ago and I was speaking with his mother and, you know, just talking to her and she just had the same feelings that I have over the last uh, two years. And as she said to me, you know, you just have to learn to live with it, OK? It's, it's hard every day, but you have to move on and just do the best you can. Um, you know, we have them. You know, and at the time of the accidents, you know, she said, all you say is, please, God, please let her live, you know. But, um, yes, it was great to talk to other parents and, you know, just to find that there is other people like you in the same situation. It's not just a problem for the person with the acquired brain injury, as everybody at this table knows. It affects dramatically the whole family. We know, every one of us, that... um, the carers themselves sometimes are in as much need of care as the actual um, people themselves who have acquired the brain injury. A meeting with this regroup has been a lifeline. Everybody benefits just from being in the company of people that they know uh, automatically understand how you feel without having to explain yourself. The people here are my reality. Outside, I don't have a reality. When I speak to friends, they don't know. Like, I had dreams for my son as well. You know, um, I I still have, and I will have. You know, I must have, or I can't go on. I have heard families who felt that 
they so almost drag the person back from the brink of death. They wish them back. They beg the doctors to save them. They bargained with God, begging to save the person. And families have said to me, you know, look, look what what their life is like now. That maybe they either feel they've no quality of life, or that they have a quality of life, but that they feel when they themselves die as carers or can no longer care for the person, that they know there isn't anybody else there to take it over. And I've certainly heard families say they hope the person dies around the same time as them, that nobody else will do the same job. Um, And I think that's just so sad when you hear families saying that. It's like without that kind of long-term planning, families have no peace of mind and they have no expectations of things getting better. I have to say the majority of families are just fantastic. They just will cope. They cope with situations that they themselves feel they never thought they'd cope with. And certainly for those of us watching the situation, you know, you'd wonder how people manage. And they just, out of sheer love for the person, they, they keep going. I used to feel very angry about the usual by me. Why did it have to happen to me? But I'm not as angry anymore. I have reached a sort of acceptance, acceptance that this is life now, not how I want it to be by any means, but this is it. I had no choice in it, and this is the way I've ended up. And my life has changed, but... I have changed too. I think I've become a stronger person. I'm more outspoken than what I was before my accident. And I'm, I know what I want out of life. And I'm more stronger now than I was. And I feel that the only thing I can do now is move on. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.